If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. This week we're asking, is there a single moral self behind our actions? People who are, we might judge to be morally wicked in various ways, in other ways do perfectly decent and ordinary things. To help us discuss morality and perceptions of the self through time, we are joined this week by three leading philosophers. John Milbank is the director of the Centre of Theology and Philosophy at the University of Nottingham. Joining him is Julian Bagini, co-founder and editor of The Philosopher's Magazine, and Angie Hobbs, professor of the public understanding of philosophy at the University of Sheffield. If you enjoy today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iei.tv. Back now to our host for this week's debate, Christopher Hamilton. Good afternoon, everyone. Yes, my name's Christopher Hamilton. I teach philosophy at King's College in London. The theme of our debate, as I say, is the question of uh, the self and uh, morality, ethics. And this this comes about, the question comes about partly because of a puzzle that we have about thinking about the relationship between morality and the self. And it's this, that um, people who we might judge to be morally wicked in various ways, in other ways, do perfectly decent and ordinary things. It's well known that Hitler, for example, wasn't, morally speaking, the most pleasant of people. But on the other hand... We know he was very nice to his pet dog. Indeed, I think he was a vegetarian. So he clearly had a moral conscience somewhere or other. Or again, um, we might think of someone like Mother Teresa, who on the one hand seemed to be morally absolutely irreproachable, but of course after her death was accused of having uh, collaborated with some not particularly pleasant regimes in the uh, attempt to raise funds for her um, work. So the relationships are how we think about a self over time and how it's related to moral questions is very complex. Should we think of there as being evil or fundamentally evil or fundamentally good people? Or are we mistaken in thinking that? Should we think more rather in terms of good acts and good deeds and kind of detach them in a way from the idea of an enduring self uh, through time? And I guess one could add to that also the thought that all of us recognise in ourselves highly complex motives, both for good and uh, for evil. So I'd like to start with John. How would you take this uh, 
Well, as you've said, there are, there are clearly two aspects to the topic. There's the question about the metaphysical continuity of the self on the one hand, and this question about the relevance to ethics on, on, on the other hand. Um, I'm not terribly convinced by, by the examples you've given, because uh, I don't think either of them prove inconsistency. They, they just suggest perhaps you know, moral limitation, that, that uh, you know, moral sensibility in certain directions and, and not others. They don't necessarily uh, prove inconsistency or any kind of inconsistency of, of narrative. Um, when it comes to the metaphysical question, obviously that's an enormously um, complicated um, issue. And uh, uh, it would seem in general that if you're resistant to the idea of a punctual self, there's a kind of self that remains um, the same all, all the time, that you, you need to embrace some kind of narrative self, some kind of um, continuous self. The third alternative would be that there is no continuity um, whatsoever. I think some, the problem with that is sometimes if you start talking about no self, it, it starts to look like a kind of, if you like, like a hyper-transcendental self. Um, and I think the problem with all the non-narrative positions, there are certain sort of favouring of space over time. Uh, and, and a failure to see that although sort of narrative looks rather subjective and constructed, it isn't necessarily, if you take seriously the ontological primacy of time, um, refusals of the narrative position like Galen Strawson's, for example, seem to not think about time at all. They seem to suggest, oh, we can be living within the now. Well, what, what could that possibly mean? You know, we're, we're never in the now. We're, if, if there's no sense that uh, the now is composed of sort of memory and hope, then that, the now would just vanish. And that, that seems to be, to my mind anyway, to be already like um, a little narrative. And, and I think that even if you think of sort of the level before consciousness, that time is, is, is very important. If we think about the fact that our bodies are changing all the time, and yet they retain the same shape, the same style, the, 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 same, the same habit. And th this is, if you like, already like a, a, a narrative pattern. If you, if you say that, you know, um, the reason things re remain in time is that they're more than passively habitual. They embody a kind of activity of, of habit. Then this is exactly as if they are kind of consistently narrating themselves. And uh, precisely our kind of human difficulties of understanding cause mean that, that we, we do actually have to re resort to rather narrative categories. And against Strawson, I think Hume himself does that, that it's a matter of feeling and imagination and sympathy. And in that way, we realize the consistencies of things. So I would want to say, you know, not start at the level of consciousness, but say precisely in terms of our embodiments, we are, there's already a kind of certain given consistency about the self. And I think that when it comes to the moral issue, a huge mistake made by kind of situationists and behaviorists is that they assume that the only thing that's coming from the outside are these uh, very kind of occasional stimuli or commands and so on. Whereas I think also 
our narrative consistency comes from from the outside in part you know that we we take on roles roles are very strong storylines are suggested to us you know as soon as we start to read stories literally as children um you know by our parents by schools and we we then kind of internalize um the, the, those those storylines um I think that it would be extremely difficult to imagine morality um, without uh, a narrative dimension, you know, because how would you define an act? There's a lot of performative contradiction going on here. As soon as we start to say what a good act is, we seem to be already telling a little story or referring a little story. We, you know, it's an act is something continuous that leads to a certain outcome. If it, if it was entirely one point in time, it really wouldn't have any moral quality to it um, at all. I mean, the mere fact that an action is in motion, that an action is synthesizing past, present and future, tends, I think, to give it a teleological quality. I think we've got to see that there is a kind of mixture of unconscious, unconscious narrative, which is a habit, where we don't have to keep sort of deliberately remembering what we've done, because it's, it's just, as it were, accumulated within it, within us, but it's still a kind of unconscious narrative. And then at a more conscious level of moral responsibility, we're having to, if you like, more actively form our habits. So I would okay, suggest... John, very... I'm, going, I'm going to stop yeah, you there okay. simply for the sake of bringing in other people. Okay. Which certainly we'll come back to further with sure. your thoughts okay, later. No okay. Yeah. Julian. Okay, right. So um, returning to, to, your, to your question, um, I, th I think it's, it's quite interesting because the idea of whether there's a single self... Um, I think we led astray a lot. I mean, let's take an example. We've got a watch here. Is is there a single unified timekeeper here? You know, I mean, well, I don't know. In in a way, there isn't. There's only a collection of parts. There's a mechanism, a battery, a face, a winder, all those things. Um, so there's no kind of single unified timepiece in that sense. But on the other hand all the parts are working together, I can put, in a sense, the whole is a kind of unified timepiece. And although the self is more complicated than a watch, I think there's, there's a kind of analogy there, which is that I think we've been told a lot by people who particularly work in, you know, psychology and neuroscience about how there is no single unified self at the core of existence. And, and this is an insight, you know, which goes back way beyond neuroscience. It's an idea came up very early in Buddhism and is there in, in human lock. And I think, I think this is kind of right, you know. So if we're looking for a, the unified self as this sort of simple, enduring essence, then it isn't there. But I think then sometimes we get carried away with that and saying, ah, oh, you know, we're just this uh, a, a jumble of different mechanisms all working against each other, and therefore there can be no sort of a unity at all. Well, all these parts do fit together remarkably well. And when they're working well, they fit together almost as seamlessly as, as the watch, maybe. And I think from a moral point of view, the question we should be asking really is, you know, is the self coherent enough that it makes sense to attribute to it things like moral responsibility and blame? 
And although there's a lot to be said about that, I think that is true. So although there are internal inconsistencies, although you know different parts of ourselves are sometimes working against each other and so forth, and so you know the the illusion of a kind of an absolute essence or harmony isn't there. Um, I suppose I'd want to maintain the view that it still makes sense to hold people as the wholes accountable for their moral actions and to think of ourselves as moral agents in that sense. I'll just leave it for there for the moment. Okay, great. Thank you, Julian. Angie. Right, thank you. So um, I'd, I'm not going to concentrate on the uh, issues, the metaphysical issues to do with personal identity, but as one sub-branch of that, the notion of the moral self and whether that makes any sense at all. Um, and that will get me into looking at the relationship between acts and character and whether there is any such thing as a moral character. So the first point I want to emphasize is that I completely agree uh, with John that we are all incredibly complex and we are capable of not, nece not always necessarily of inconsistent actions, but of very, very varied actions. And he used the example of Hitler, who cared about animals, but clearly not about Jews and Romanis and Slavs. And uh, I don't know where redheads came. I, I would probably have been in for the chop. Um, so obviously, there's at any one time, we are capable of great complexity. Over time, and again, I agree with John that time is crucial here, we are immensely fluid and plastic. We change. Um, I'm currently... Uh, absolute reading. Finally, at my ripe old age, I'm finally reading War and Peace. And Tolstoy's just brilliant. I mean, what a psychologist. He's just brilliant, not only at the way people who normally behave well can sometimes behave appallingly and vice versa, but he's, I've never met a writer who shows d a development and change in the way that he does. As a philosopher, it, the relation between acts and character is of huge interest to me, and I've studied both the Aristotle and the Stoics a lot in this, in this regard. And I'd, certainly I find Aristotle more congenial. But for the Stoics, um, you're only a, a good Stoic, a good person, if you are totally, utterly, and completely good. And anything short of that, no matter how far you've gone along the road toward goodness, you're bad. So there is just goodness and everything else bad. There is no sort of gradations. And they, they put it very harshly. They say, um, if you're um, drowning, you drown just as effectively, whether you're you know, two inches below the surface of the water or 10 you know, feet or whatever they measured in. Uh, so that's a very harsh view. Aristotle has a kinder view. And he says, we, we, you need to start off by performing good and bad actions. And you repeat them. You repeat the action without really understanding why it's good or bad. And then as reason develops, as you are hopefully, and we'll come back to that in a moment, well taught, you come to understand why an action is good or bad. And you start consistently repeating, say, the good action and understanding why it's good. And you end up wanting to do the good action, desiring to do it, taking pleasure in it. And when you've got to that stage of taking pleasure in your good actions, to, and, and doing them automatically as second nature and doing them consistently, then finally you're a good person. Now, I find that more con a more congenial view. However, it does raise some really tough questions for this debate. 
because I've said that as reason develops, you come to understand the, the why of the what. That's how he puts it. You uh, start off doing the what, you repeat the what, and eventually you understand the why. And it's only when you understand the why of the goodness of what you're doing that you can be said to be good. That suggests that we need to be lucky enough to be in a position where we are able to develop our reason. We, we are, to some extent, dependent on our teachers, our parents, our external circumstances. And I think this is unpalatable, but I think it is true. I think, there is an, I think it is easier for some people to, be, to develop good characters than others. I think it is easier if you are well-fed and well-housed and have been lucky enough to have a good education. I realize that's a controversial view, and I'm sure we'll come back to it in the debate. So developing good character, easier for some people than others, a measure of moral luck is involved. However, despite that, and this is the second harsh view, we still need to hold people morally responsible for their actions, uh, even if it's been easier for some people to become good than others, because otherwise, as a society, we really are scuppered. And I think we, and we, you know, I think we do want to make it to, to say that somebody who has murdered somebody or raped somebody or whatever should take responsibility for it and own up to it, even if it's been easier for some people than others. So some controversial views, uh, but that's what we're here for. Thank you very much, Angie. Yeah, of course, that raises an absolutely, as you say, fundamental issue about the idea of holding somebody responsible for something over which he or she had no choice in the sense that it flowed from a character that wasn't fully chosen. So I wonder if we could move on to that, Julian. I mean, thinking about the perspective that you offered and thinking about what Angie has said there, to what extent do you think we have choice or control over our character? I mean, and that, of course, brings in many things, our thoughts, our intentions, but also what one might think of as fundamental aspects of one's character. What are, you, can you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, sort of, I think in framing this, it's useful to sort of think about how I, a lot of people who hold very radical positions, I'll make a general point here, um, they, they're made to seem radical because they're opposing something which has been framed in a way that is always too extreme to be credible, right? So people say we have no free will, there's no self. They're often kind of, their definition of free will or, or self is something so idealised, unrealistic, that it's not easy to show it doesn't exist. Now, I think responsibility is like that. I think that for some, it's very easy to think that in order for there to be such a thing as moral responsibility, that requires a kind of ultimate responsibility, that I can only hold you account for your actions and you can only account, hold me to account for my actions if it was really entirely my doing and as soon as you start to concede that moral luck comes into it um, you know social conditions come into it genes come into it, etc etc responsibility goes out the window now I don't think that's true at all I think that the responsibility is actually far more careful than that I mean, you only need ultimate responsibility frankly if you're going to condemn people to eternal damnation or eternal salvation because then it would be unfair to sort of do that if they weren't 100% responsible. But responsibility is actually about sort of, it, it's part of a whole sort of ecosystem in which we exist, if you like, in which it's, a, it's about creating the conditions which enable us to become as self-governing and as autonomous and as responsible as we can be. So when you don't hold people to account for their actions at all, you make them not responsible for anything, that actually makes it less difficult for them to cultivate as much responsibility as they could have. If I give an example of this, I don't want to go on too long, but um, 
An interesting case of this is with addiction. I mean, addiction is a very difficult thing. Uh, but the point is, if you, if you speak to anyone who has suffered from an addiction or who is, sort of works with people with addictions, uh, people only can get out of the ad addiction if they have the capacity to realise that they do have an element of control and responsibility. So it's no good turning around to someone with addiction and saying, just stop doing it, you know. You have to accept the fact that their capacity to take responsibility has been diminished, has been affected, the, the, they've been disenabled by it. But in order to, to as it were, be get back to a state of being in control, it's very important that the responsibility they have is, is emphasised and built and grown. So, so long way round to the answer, which is that we don't... How much we're in control of ourselves, how much we are the authors of our own characters, exactly those proportions is perhaps controversial. But even if the proportion is very small, that doesn't mean responsibility doesn't have a role to play. Even if it's the case that I am sort of like 99% the product of, you know, 99% of what I do is kind of beyond my control. As long as there's a possibility for me to become aware of what I'm doing and exercise some executive control, that's where responsibility has a role to play in making me take, take advantage of that. Mm. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Okay, that's, that's fascinating. I want to come back to Andrew on that, then, because you've pinned your colours to the Aristotelian mask. Well, so but, no, well yeah, but Let me give you an example. Let's take, let's take somebody who's not... not uh, um, not an addict, so it's not a case of addiction, but one of my favourite authors is Samuel Johnson. Now, Johnson yes. battled throughout his whole life to overcome what he saw as his own laziness, his own tendency to you know, stay in bed late. His diaries are incredibly moving with this next time, next year, you know, this is my new year. Suppose we have, and this is a genuine question, this isn't one mm -hmm. to which, I mean, suppose we have a case of somebody who's battled for, you know, 30, 40 years to overcome a particular tendency, is self-conscious about what's going on, seeks, you know, whatever kind of therapeutic help order, and in the end just says, I simply can't do it. Now, should we then say this person is no longer responsible in the sense that this person has sought to overcome this tendency of character? So I'd like to know what Aristotle would say about that, and then I'd like to know what Angie Hobbs would say about that. Aristotle, as, well, as you know, yep. he's going to take the tough view. He's going to take the tough view. I mean, Aristotle would say, no, they are, they are still responsible. The, the, it is, the, the action is still emanating from them. Nobody is actually physically pushing them. Um, he's not great on mental illness. I mean, we now know that Dr. Johnson was yeah. almost certainly had very severe clinical depression. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, not... But that will be a, a further example not of lazy, some, yeah. Not lazy at all. I mean, an Aristotle is, is, got a, is really poor on, on mental illness. Yeah. On, on things which are, may or may not be connected to mental illness, like alcohol, he takes a really tough line. He says, if you, you know, if you injure somebody by accident when you're drunk, you should get twice the penalty because it's your fault you were <laughs> drunk. So 
we, we, we know where Aristotle yeah. come on that. Where would I come on that? That somebody who's so what are, now? Are they battling with? Are they battling well, with take, a, what, take a, whatever an illness, take or whatever, are they battling with a character okay, flaw? Take, take whatever example you like that makes it most difficult to attribute responsibility. Obviously, if you're dealing with a case of mental illness or clinical depression, yes. things are going to be more complicated. But we're yes. talking about a perfectly normal person who simply finds that he or she has this persistent trait of character. Yeah, I mean, there are other yeah. plenty of examples. You mentioned the Stoics. I mean, yes. they were especially interested in anger yes. and, and the way in which controlling one's anger, dealing one, with one's anger is extraordinarily difficult. And there yeah. are people, of course, and we have anger management classes and so on. Do you think in that kind of case we should attribute to somebody, to, to somebody an ongoing self which is responsible? Or do you think there's a way in which we should stand off and say, whatever we think about the legal issue, from a moral point of view, this person isn't... Oh, we, oh well, you've just made it even more complicated by separating... That, that's my job as the host. ...ethics <laughs> and the law there. From, from a, a legal and political point of view, I think we still have to say that person is responsible. I think the, the legal and political mess we get into if people don't take responsibility morally. Um, I actually made a program about this quite recently and I had a very similar question. Morally, I would privately be, be more lenient to them, but le legally, I still think they would need to go to prison. Okay, well, that so might... I don't want to come in, but I think one of the problems is we don't want to think about responsible or not responsible. I think there are degrees of responsibility. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're, you're looking at the limiting cases there where someone's sort of like... And I think the point is, as long as we have reason to think that it's possibly within someone's capacity, we have to kind of like keep sort of like maintaining that responsibility. But, you know, that mitigating circumstances, you can become more understanding. When you see that it's really, really difficult for this person, it doesn't mean you say, oh, well, they're not responsible anymore, but you can be a bit more lenient, a bit softer, give them a bit more leeway. As the judge would be in that case. As, as, the, as ju the judge exactly. would be. The law is actually quite good on this. Yes. The law actually recognises... OK, Angie, Angie, hold on a minute, hold on a minute, because I want to bring in John yeah. here. And in particular, so I'd like you to respond John to what's being said there but also in particular if you could also to something that Julian said which is the idea of total responsibility a kind of ultimate level of responsibility goes in hand in hand with the idea I take it you had in mind a Christian idea of eternal damnation punishment or, or reward as the case in, may in be so, in some yeah. forms yes some forms, yeah yeah <laughs> so if you could develop maybe that point and respond to the points well, that have been made I think to the contrary that an exaggerated idea of responsibility is much more in this kind of stoic line or a Kantian line that that you're rejecting and is is linked to a rather denarrativized uh, account of the self that wherever you are without any and I thought you gave a really excellent account of Aristotle and I just agree with it um, I just wonder though whether there isn't a little more room than you're saying within that kind of virtue approach um, for liberalism about responsibility precisely okay, because yeah, sure. that approach suggests that you have to learn responsibility and after all Aristotle thinks only a certain class of people can really do it you know they they have had the moral luck to be well born and and so on to to learn to exercise magnanimity i i think it's interesting that our, our notions are maybe because of biblical influence of what counts as virtue are more democratic you know kind of everybody be, can be loving and forgiving and yet even there i think there is a moral luck element entering into it you know what what fortune um you you have had uh, and again i think um, maybe Aristotle, but certainly the Middle Ages, you know, they, they did know something about these categories of pathology. They had categories like melancholia. Uh, um, and uh, 
I, I think it's interesting that for them also, it's a very gray area. I mean, think of Akidia in the Middle Ages. It's kind of something you're responsible for, but also it's something you're a victim of. And actually, they were much more subtle than we think. And I think even today, that's what I would say, that it's, in a sense, any bad pattern we're suffering from, um, and yet, uh, inversely, it's, you know, even some extreme mental cases, you can't say, you know, we're not responsible for. But I think we do rightly make judgments um, that some people are suffering such severe pathologies that they're not really responsible and sometimes it, it fully responsible. They haven't achieved, you know, responsibility is, if you like, an ethical goal. And as a matter of fact, the law does recognise that, you know. It's some, it says, you know, you, you were not in a state of responsibility, um, um, at the time. So, I, I, you know, m my position would be that exactly, the, you know, the narrative virtue approach you're defending and, and, and your account that however complex it is, we can't abandon a coherent self altogether. I, I think this is the right way to go as between a kind of extreme behaviorism on the one hand and, and a mere, you know, an extreme Kantian stoic rigorism on the other hand, so I sense a sort of disappointing consensus. Well, can I? I want to. I just want, I want to bring to in a, a spanner. And, uh, a little spanner. Okay, throw a spanner. Well, it's 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 just you. You've been more ambitious than me. You've used the phrase a coherent self, and I deliberately didn't go that far because I'm not. I, I might tend more towards Julian. I mean, I believe that both personally and as a society, we need to have a, con a conception of a moral self, which in almost all cases is morally responsible. And I agree with, with Julian that apart from the, even if you've only got a little bit of control over what you can do, well, I'm sorry, that is enough to hold you responsible. However, a coherent self, now that, what what are, what are your criteria for, I mean, coherent to you, coherent to the outside world? Because we are, as we saw at the beginning, incredibly complicated. And our, our needs yeah, could and I, desires so can are I, real can, So can I, can I just bring that together and then I'll throw something else in? So, I mean, one, one way of thinking about that is that we could have at least two ways of thinking of ourselves. One way of thinking of ourselves is, and certainly most of the people I know think of themselves in that way, as having certain fundamental character traits which make up the kind of person that they are. This yeah. is the kind of person I am. And yet at the same time we have this peculiar... So that gives us kind of weight to the yeah. character. And yet at the same time there's a peculiar sense in which looking at ourselves we can see the way in which we change in different social contexts, we can depend on uh, uh, mood and yes. so on, or people with... So we can have a, at the same time a sense of the incredible lightness of the self. There's a kind of heaviness and lightness going on. Now if we feed that into this question of responsibility, Julian, Thinking about the idea that, you know, I started with some examples that John didn't like, but many people would happily or readily say, for example, that Hitler was an evil person, right? Do you think that ma it makes sense to talk of a person as being an evil person, or indeed, for that matter, being a good person, rather than saying, well, some aspects of this person's character are good, some are not so good, some are possibly evil, or should we just be thinking in terms of the acts rather than the person? How would you understand that? Yeah, I mean, it is quite complicated. I think, generally speaking, essentialising kind of descriptions are almost always kind of wrong. They're oversimplifying. Um, I don't think, you know, you go so far as saying you should never... 
Yeah, sometimes perhaps people do such extreme things, you say they're kind of evil, but, you know, sometimes to say someone is an evil person is not to saying their essence is in 100% evilness, it's simply saying that certain things about them are so bad that the overall judgment is whatever redeeming features this person might have, they're not actually redeeming features, they're simply sort of like good points in a bad thing. And the reason I think it's unhelpful to think about people as being good or evil as a kind of a global judgment rather than a kind of as a average assessment. It, 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 firstly, just, I think it's not accurate. I mean, we're all more psychologically complex than that. Uh, the second thing is that it, it's a nice way of... I mean, a lot of psychologists who have studied this kind of thoughts around evil and everything talk about this idea of otherization. you see. So that by, by, by creating a category of the evil which is outside of the normal realm of human experience, we're able to kind of somehow otherize it and make it separate. And that's very dangerous because it's a way of like, if we think like that, then we think that evil has nothing to do with us. Mm. And of course, what we find is when evil, when what we call evil emerges in a society, invariably you find people who are previously blameless are deeply implicated in it. And of course, Germ Germany knows this very, very well. There is nothing exceptional about Germany. Um, so that's why I think it's really wrong to sort of say, oh, these people are just evil. It's a, it's, it's a way of ignoring the fact that whatever they did that was bad, that we probably have elements of that in ourselves as, as well. Would, would one way be to express that? I mean, if we switch it from, say, the second or third person point of view to look at uh, the first person, you know, my view on myself, suppose I do something which I regard as so terrible that I then regard everything, I regard myself as evil, not in the sense that everything I've done is evil, but in the sense, it's a kind of antique moral notion, really, the idea that I'm polluted or tainted by something I've done. Would you accept that? Well, well I, I, in a sense, I think that can be appropriate. I think sometimes it is appropriate to sort of recognise you've done something so bad that in a way you carry a stain that you'll never be able to remove. I think that can be appropriate. But at the same time, it's generally not helpful just... That those globalising judgments are, are generally not helpful to... Because they're an obstacle to development, actually. So, again, if you, if you go away slightly from the moral... the strictly moral point of view... Again, I think... Uh, correct me if anyone in the, in the, in the audience who sort of um, is a therapist themselves, but I think a lot of the problems therapists come up against is when people make those essentializing judgments about themselves and get trapped in them. Oh, I'm a, you know, I'm terrible. I'm terrible at relationships or I always screw things up. These kind of things, what they do is they're always like, they're closing down the possibilities on yourself. So if you've done something really bad and really terrible, although I think it'd be very appropriate to let's say, feel that stain and feel you can never quite remove it, like Lady Macbeth, you can wash your hands and get rid of it. That's, you should still resist the idea of like, sort of, you know, saying, well, I am a bad person. Because if you say that, you're in a sense, you're, you're, you're denying the possibility that you, you, you might be able to do better in the future. It sounds, Angie, as if Aristotle might have taken a more uh, stringent line on that idea. You know, uh, of course, he has the idea of the, uh, you know, the perfect human or the, 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 the human being who has achieved the virtuous life or the excellent life to the maximum. But how, how would it work out in terms of this idea of judge? You know, does he think there are lives that are c complete failures morally, that in that sense are, are fully evil or fully gone wrong? Well, I'm trying to remember the bit in Nicomachean Ethics Book 7. I haven't read it for a while, and maybe somebody else in this, this tent has read it more recently. I think, because his lowest category is of the... You've got the entirely good person, and then you've got the person who is 
tempted to do wrong but overcomes it, the encratic person who's tempted to do bad things but overcomes it, and which might be the person Kant praises most. And then you've got the acratic person who knows what's the right thing to do but gives in to temptation, where most, where I certainly reside a lot of the time. And then you go down the list, and his lowest category is what I'm afraid he calls the bestial human. Um, I'm afraid you can't sugar, sugarcoat that language. I'm trying to remember, I'm not sure that he's, I, I'm not even sure he blames them. I, no. I think, I think he says they're just outside praise and blame. Have I remembered that right? But what do you think, do you think that's a helpful way for us to think about ourselves? Um, I, th well, what I want to bring in here is an, another version, and we've been talking about moral luck and character formation, but there's another kind of moral luck, which we haven't yet touched on, though we've skirted around the edges, which is the circumstances in which you find yourself. So we, we, you, you've mentioned Germany. So there'll be plenty of Germans who say, jo you know, join the Nazi party, maybe were even in the camps and maybe did absolutely appalling, appalling things and may or may not be candidates for Julian's notion of permanent moral stain. However, supposing the Nazi party had never come about, supposing the war hadn't happened, so what, they might have lived utterly sort of blameless lives in their villages and towns as good fathers and grandfathers or mothers and grandmothers and gone around and doing good in their community. Um, as it so happened, they were tested in an extreme crucible of fire and they failed that test. Let us all hope that we don't have to get tested so much. We are in fairly testing times at the moment, not that bad, but pretty testing. Um, we're already seeing how certain politicians around the world are being tested and some are disappointing us deeply in ways that we, I mean, I, you know, I've spent years and years um, admiring the lady in Burma, and um, as I'm sure many of us are, hugely disappointed at how, how she's not responding to the terrible, terrible Rohingya crisis there. So when extreme circumstances come, some people stand up and are counted and some don't. And some of us sort of are lucky enough to escape those kinds of crucibles. And I guess, I guess part of that, and it was an important point that came up in an earlier part of the discussion, is our remembering that we're capable of certain terrible things and that's one way of reminding ourselves to how we might possibly be able to avoid them. So I wonder, John, if perhaps partly from a theological perspective you can pick up on this, this question of a, a good person, an evil person. After all, at least in some, I don't say all, but in some strands of Christianity there's the idea of you know separating the sheep from the goats, those who are going to be rewarded, those who are going to be punished. How would you see that in terms of these notions of responsibility? Well, I, I, I mean, I completely agree with what Julian's saying. And in fact, I think, you know, the theological tradition is clear. You know, there are no absolutely good people. Evil is more something like a deficiency uh, and a lack that we all, all have in, in some degrees. And I think it's incredibly dangerous to think of oneself as sort of either good or, or evil um, full stop. Although at the same time, there are really terrible things that indeed colour um, one's whole life. And I think that probably does relate to Aristotle's question of what somehow virtue is, is related to the shape of a whole life, the verdict you give on, on a whole life, so that um, you then get the aporia that, that only when you're dead can, can, can you know whether you've been virtuous and it, it's too late. Um, 
And, and I, I don't, uh, you know, how does that relate to, um, uh, you, know, you know, a dimension of where, of where you, is our only aim to sort of become a good character. But we can't really do that non-relationally. We can't really do that outside the city and either outside the collective task of, of realising justice. Uh, and maybe actually Plato is... Uh, a little bit clearer about that than Aristotle is, and I think this is this is why you know there are both individual imperatives, but there's also um, a social imperative to try to kind of minimise moral luck, if 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 you like, and there's there's a collective aim to 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 try to realise um, good structures, but. Just, just, you know, the question of sort of consistency has has come up. And I think maybe I would say a little more in favour of consistency, that, you know, even when the novelist is seeing inconsistencies, it's looking, he is or she is looking for a deeper pattern, you know, that explains those those very inconsistencies, if you like. And I, and I, I think that despite the fact that, um, each of us is incredibly different. It's it's as if each person has a, a, their own very weird logic, but but there is a logic that, there. And maybe the mystery is why we are at once uh, sort of always behaving according to this pattern, and yet we're not completely predictable. And yeah. some people even less so than others. And I, I don't know that I understand all that. Yeah. OK, good. So we've been thinking about the um, the notion of uh, the nature of the self, its relation to responsibility, its relationship to good and evil. Julian, you talked a lot about unproductive or unhelpful ways of thinking of, of the self, you know, if one is thinking about developing or changing in certain ways. Do you think there's any mileage in the thought that we'd be better off thinking of ourselves as having no self, perhaps in a way, something like the way the Buddhists do, because sometimes that seems to me not so much a statement of metaphysical fact as rather a kind of ethical, ethical task or ethical objective. Do you think there's anything in that? Um, well, there's something. I mean, in this, it, we've got to make sort of fairly sort of fine distinctions. I mean, the Buddhist no-self view, which a lot of people would have heard of, you know, is really what I was describing at the beginning with the watch. Okay, I mean, actually, the original, the earliest, one of the earliest texts to talk about this used the example of a chariot. That there is no chariot. There's only the wheel, the axle, the platform, all these things. Well. If you look at that very carefully, the person is clearly not saying there's no chariot. They're saying, don't think there is an essential item called the chariot, which is independent of its parts. And we're the same way. So, and I think, you know, Buddhist no-self never, has never really been a denial of a self in, in one sense. But, this, but it's a denial of the self as anything other than the assembly of the parts. Now, is that helpful? I, I think it is helpful in, in quite a lot of ways, actually. Uh, I think one way is that I... And I think that modern science is kind of reinforcing this, that if you really want to understand yourself and how you work, and it's been a long goal of philosophy and wisdom traditions that, you know, know thyself in order to become better, you, you have to become aware of the ways in which, you know, there are different sort of competing urges which are not necessarily... Um, you know, consistent with each other, or if it's not, what it, or some tension, let's say, if not actual inconsistency. So, being aware of that is very important for self knowledge, and for therefore for self development. And the other thing that's helpful in terms of self development is that it just brings to the foreground the extent, to the, the fluidity 
of the self and the adaptability of the self. So we don't get trapped in a sort of like an image of ourself which, which limits our future action. To say one thing about the downside, though, is that you can take that too far. And I do think one of the modern mantras, which I sort of like makes me want to slap my forehead is you know you can be anything you want to be because the extraordinary thing is despite the fact there's an absence of an essence of self which is unchanging etc etc we are remarkably consistent over time generally you know and like even even as we change in some ways we change enormously as we grow older but if anyone's been to a reunion of their school i went to a school in 25 years it's kind of depressing in a way. It, I found it depressing. I found it joyful in the sense that all the joyful that all these people actually turned into into wonderful human beings. Like, isn't it great? You know, but also terrifying how much you could. You're sitting having the old arguments. Yeah, yeah. Johnny, Johnny the bully was still. Yeah. Yeah. So, so no. So there is not infinite plasticity. You can't be anything. Ordinary. There are certain things about us which do seem to be pretty deep set you know, personality traits he said we're not entirely wrong to think that there are certain personality traits which are pretty much going to be with us always right. okay. but but being aware that that we're a, we're complicated and a mixture of things and that change is possible i think is is much more helpful than the opposite thanks for listening to this week's episode of philosophy for our times remember to like subscribe and review wherever you listen And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.